Amen. Well, I hope you are all doing well this evening. Uh, We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to go ahead and pray before we get started, because I want to read the text just a little bit uh, in in pieces and and talk about it as we go. So let's go ahead and pray for our text tonight. Uh, Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord, uh, for this week. Lord, uh, in fact, I was just thinking that all those who are not here tonight, Lord, were at the funeral yesterday and were back here last night, Lord, for Sunday school discussion, Lord. So we just ask you to bless them, Lord. I truly know that they're probably resting, Lord, and and, and resting in you. And we just ask you to bless them, Lord. But Lord, we ask you to bless our time together tonight, Lord, that we would see this text, Lord, in proper context and also, Lord, in how it applies to our lives today. Lord, your word is living and active. It is not an ancient, dusty old document, Lord. It is alive. It has power, and it has meaning for us today. We thank you, Lord, for that, and we ask you to bless this text as we read it. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So looking at Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we see that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then some uh, manuscripts and Bible translations continue with for those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pause there for just a second. So when we're talking about the lack of condemnation, we are speaking of our sin in the presence of holy God who by all rights and justifiably should take us and our sin and whisk us away from him as he will do to those who are in sin on that final day. And so the fact that we have no condemnation now means that Jesus has interceded in that place. God does not see you or I. He sees his son in your heart and from there says you may enter in as we celebrated our brother Kelton yesterday, who has entered in the the presence of God, and we know that by his testimony. Um, Sin had completely corrupted. Uh, In Psalms 14, you don't have to turn there, but it, it says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, there's an an inherent aspect of American culture that tells us that we are all individuals with rugged spirits and we have some good inside of us. And this is a fable of Danny Crockett all the way to, uh, you know, modern day sports heroes. But the Bible says differently. The scripture says that there is none who are good. There are none who seek after God. God looks at the earth and sees fools who look at the heavens and declare that I am stardust and I am nothing but a bag of fizzing chemicals and meat that has happened to coincide perfectly over millions of years to become the thinking, logical creature that I am. This, of course, violates science uh, itself. If you are a scientific person, there's a law of thermodynamics that says an object at rest will stay at rest until acted upon by an outside force. How, then, can a Big Bang explode? How can matter come from no matter? These are scientific questions that we need to ask the world when they challenge us on our Christian faith, because we have evidence on our side. But we have something more important. 
We have faith in Christ. We have something more important than scientific evidence. And God has not tried to trick us. There is nowhere in Scripture where God said, Now go out there into the world and find physical evidence of me and prove that I'm real. In fact, in Romans 1, God said that the evidence is already there. It is all around. It is creation itself. And no one can say, I didn't know. I didn't know about you, God. How, how can you judge me, God, on my sin? I didn't know you were real. No, they know. Romans says that they do. Jesus, then, has done what the law could not. You and I have been set free in the Spirit of God. God has done this for you because of His great love. We could not earn it. We don't deserve it. But God has given it anyway. And we call this grace. And one of the best examples of grace is the idea of adoption, the idea of being brought in. So, uh, and further on in Romans 8, it talks about being, the, uh, the, being brought in as a son of God and a daughter of God, and Jesus who says, Abba, Father, and the word Abba there is just Aramaic for father. So he's saying, Father, Father, you have brought me into this family. You have done this for me, and the condemnation that was once crushing me has now been lifted. And this is why many people go to church, but they don't go to Christ. They find religion, but they don't find Jesus in their religion. Jesus did not come to abolish religion in Matthew. He said, I came to fulfill it. But people go to religions that lack Christ, and therefore they lack power in their hearts. No longer do they have what they need to lift that condemnation. They will forever feel the weight of sin upon them, unless... Jesus Christ be the one that lifts it. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Where is your mind? And we like to use a phrase, and I use it with students all the time, boy, you better get your mind right. You know, I was, we were playing dodgeball last night with some students, and one of them thought that he was going to peg me, and I said, boy, you better get your mind right. That ain't about to happen. And, well, he, he did end up pegging me, but that's besides the point. <laughs> and, uh, and when we say that, because it's true, when we set our minds on what is sinful, then we will do what is sinful. But if we set our minds on the Spirit, then we will fulfill what is Spirit. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Death leads to spiritual death. But life and peace lead to eternal life with God. This cannot happen without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by the salvation of Christ, by the grace of God. The Trinity of God is working in you even now. Even now. The Spirit works, God works, Jesus works. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit. And this is that crushing weight of those who are in religious institutions, who are in churches, even Baptist churches. They are hearing the gospel message, but because they have not turned to Christ, it, it further weighs upon them. There is an old uh, punishment that specifically was used in Salem, Massachusetts, when they were trying to identify witches in the city. And there was a man named Giles Corey, who, this is a historical account, was made famous in Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. They wanted him to confess, or at the very least, deny that he was a witch. And he refused to enter a plea. 
Now, he did this because had he entered a plea, if he denied it, they would have said, you're lying and, ex- and, and executed him. If he confessed to being a witch, they would have stripped his title and his land from him. But by saying nothing, his sons were sure to receive the land that was their inheritance. So Giles Corey, and this is a that's made famous in Arthur Miller's play, um, and uh, and he's underneath this stuff, and he will not do it. He will not confess, and he will not enter a plea of not guilty. He remains silent, and because of that, he is killed. They begin to put they put a board over top of him and begin to lay stones on top of that, and begin to push down on him. This was called pressing. And the idea is that it doesn't kill you very quickly. So it's, it just makes you uh, uh, feel, obviously the weight upon you compresses your body, but it compresses your heart and your lungs and your guts and you can't breathe. The blood begins to cut off circulation to certain limbs. Your limbs begin to go numb. And eventually the torture becomes so great. The idea being you will say something. You will confess or you'll enter a plea of not guilty. Giles Corey died under that weight. There are people under the similar weight of sin and and they go to church and they hear the gospel and without Christ, it's more stones upon them. It is more weight pressing upon them and all they feel is that crushing guilt. And then I believe we have a church, the Catholic institution has made a career out of crushing guilt, keeping people in line, but it doesn't change the heart, doesn't change the soul. The mind that is set on the flesh is still hostile to God. The person who the weight is upon is still hostile to God. Now they just feel bad about it. There's been no actual spiritual power in their life. There's no actual change. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because this is creation. This is the reason we were created. was not to have a kind of a happy life on earth and then get to heaven and kind of keep on doing what we like to do in heaven. It's to worship God. It's to please Him. And God declared this plainly. I am a jealous God. Do not worship other gods. Turn to me. What's the first and greatest commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. He is jealous for you. And because He is jealous for you, you cannot please Him in the flesh. Because the flesh worships itself. The flesh is the greatest false idol. Because in pride, the flesh leads itself to believe that we could be as God. It's the mistake Adam and Eve made. It's the mistake all humans have made throughout history. Every time somebody got in trouble in scripture, let's say King David with Bathsheba and and Samuel, it was because I'm the king, I know what's best, I'll make the decisions here. And every time we see that, we see sin. We see a falling away from God. The flesh would love nothing more than to knock God off his throne and replace it with itself. And that is what selfish desires do. They replace God. This is why pride is so evil. Because pride has determined itself to be the harbinger of judgment. Pride says that I'm wonderful and lovely and everyone should praise me. And I don't have any evidence to support any of these things I'm asserting. They're just true because I say so. And that is false. In fact, we teach our children, especially little children, that imaginary statements are not true just because you said them. So when my six-year-old declared that I want to be a butterfly and fly in the fields all day, I had to gently explain to her that that was not going to happen. That she was not, in fact, a butterfly. She was a six-year-old little girl. 
who is now a seven-year-old girl whose favorite animal is the duck. And I'm waiting to find out if she's going to declare that she is now, in fact, a duck. (laughs) We have to teach them that this is not true. This thing that you're imagining, that you're asserting, is not factual. But the truth is in us that we, in pride, will believe that we are worthy of making the decisions that only God can make. And pride will lead us to say, I don't need you, God. I'm in charge here. I can take care of things myself. And when that happens, I mean, it's possible the person is is a Christian. They're just very carnal and they need to be taught rightly. But typically what you see when a person has replaced God with the flesh is we are very close to that slippery slope where death and eternal death is at the end. Verse 9, you, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So Paul is writing to Christians here. And he's writing, of course, to the church in Rome, giving the book its name, Romans. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, excuse me, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now we have the righteousness element that Abraham received by faith in Genesis 15 has now come all the way forward. You and I receive it by Christ. It's the same salvation. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish. What the Hebrews were doing in the temple, the temple is now in your heart and you do it now. The sacrifice is your faith. That's what you bring to the altar. No longer works. No longer animal sacrifices. We have a new high priest who has accomplished once everything, but we still serve. This is why James says, faith without works is dead. The Bible is one consistent message across the entire thing. Everything fitting together perfectly. It has to be, of course, as we believe it is a divine document. We must not be fools. We must not turn away from this righteousness. And there are many who do. In fact, there are many who have asserted that Abraham must have done something else to receive righteousness. It cannot be that he simply believed by faith the message that he heard from the Lord. But that's what Genesis says. In fact, Abraham is never depicted as being baptized, as praying a prayer, attending a church service. We have a man who has never done any of the things that we would say in our modern culture you pretty should, you should do if you're going to be a Christian. He doesn't do any of that. All he has is God. And apparently that's enough. Genesis 15, Abraham received righteousness. But if Christ is in you, verse 10, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. This is why you and I still have struggles because we still have dead flesh. We still have leprosy coating the outside of us. The inside has been made clean by Christ and desires change, but the outside is still pulling toward death. And it it will succeed. The flesh will die. It is going to achieve its goal, but the Spirit will not go with it. The Spirit in Christ will be brought to the presence of God. So we have a righteous requirement now. Titus 1.15 says this, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So we who are righteous are pure. And not pure because we have done anything. Not pure because we've achieved water baptism. Not pure because we attend church service after church service. Not pure because we do and wear and say the right things. Pure because we have a God who is pure and has placed his spirit 
within us. This is where purity comes from. It is not, it is not a level to be achieved. It is rather a messenger given to you and I. This is why so many are filled with anger and destruction. They have no peace because they are not pure. They know that they are defiled. They know that they are dead, unbelieving. Their minds and consciences turn to darkness. And they're angry. They're angry and they rail against the one who is going to judge them because they know his judgment to be accurate and true. God does, when God speaks, he does not make up factual inaccuracies. He speaks in truth. Verse 11, Romans 8, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It's a work of Christ. It is not a work of human will whatsoever. All humans can do is experience God and respond to him correctly. Jesus has given us the correct response in Mark 1. Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have the correct response. We already know what we're supposed to do. And then when that happens, we have an entire book of Psalms, 150, to teach us how to worship this God we now believe in. This God who has taken away our sins. But we must keep going forward. Christianity now leads to sanctification. We do not simply stay in salvation, as Pastor Robin has said. We do not simply get him once to the front and then to the back for the rest of their spiritual lives. No, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care then, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. Christians, we have to be mindful of the evil heart, because the flesh is still there. And it will corrupt the heart. Remember Romans 8, if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, you will fall into evil sin. You will be defiled. Your mind must be set on the things above. And James makes mention of this. In fact, if we think about the sport of fishing, bottom feeder fish are not the ones that you want to catch and cook. You do not want the ones that run along the bottom of the riverbank scooping up every single thing that has fallen down there. Trash fish is what I hear it called much. We don't want that. We want the fish that run deep. We want to get into the depths of the sea and from there find bounty. Well, in the same way with God, you do not want to be shallow with God. You do not want to find just an inch deep of God. You want to be deep with him. And the only way to be deep in God is to be deep in his word. This is what he's revealed. The Bible, unfortunately, is not a novel that is to be read once and went, oh yeah, accomplish that, check that off my list, taken care of, read the end of Revelation, the devil did it, God wins, I'm all good. No, any more than you would have a newborn baby and feed them but once that first day and then say, oh, they're obviously fine. Who needs to give them another ounce of food? But a newborn baby is not going to let you only feed it once, isn't it? It is going to cry and scream and make a commotion every single time it is hungry. The hard question we have to ask ourselves is why do I have professing young Christians who are not clamoring for the food? Could it be that they are in fact not what they say they are? I submit that professing young Christians will 
be hungry for the word of God, that the spirit in them is going to cry out for the nourishment of milk. And as Paul said, eventually one day, meat, steak. And I think we still have a lot of bottle-fed Christians. And instead of steak, they want chocolate sauce. They want chocolate milk. And I think that's a big problem we have in church. Chocolate milk Christianity. I had milk. I kind of want something sweeter now. I'm not really interested in that adult food. Yeah, that's for preachers to do, not me. You know, The preacher can have steak, but you know, he's special. He's closer to God. He's got some kind of red phone that goes right to heaven. I just need to stay over here in the kitty area, in the nursery, with my chocolate milk and my little bouncy ball. And I think that's a big problem we have in church today. And by this, we rebel against the Lord. We have not embraced the true gospel. We have not embraced internal life. And we're not teaching young people to keep on striving forward. Psalm 119.37 Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. This is the verse that I would love everyone to memorize because it does two important things. Obviously, turning away from worthless things. What is worthless? Sin. can best be described as the septic tank at your house. It's still a part of your life. It still has to be there. But you don't want to spend your time in it. You don't want to immerse yourself in it. In fact, we want to do everything possible to move away from the septic tank spiritually. We want to move away from worthless things. We want to move to life. See, we've replaced it. Spiritually, we need to be in the kitchen, taking the word of God out of the refrigerator and putting it on the counter and begin dividing it and make, getting the ingredients of the Holy Spirit and God's blessings and apostolic, the church and the, the brothers and sisters together and begin to make this meal together. And the Bible's living and active. It's a recipe with fresh ingredients every time it's opened. It's a new, new dish every time. Never gets old, never gets stale. But what happens? We put away that good food and we will go to the McDonald's of the Christian world, Noah's Ark stories and Jonah and his whale. I say whale specifically because it's not called a whale. <laughs> it's called a fish. And Jonah, we will go to the McDonald's and we will order McChickens off the spiritual value menu and declare that it's enough. That look what we've done. We fed everybody. But they're, they're still hungry. And we didn't really give them anything worth eating. McNuggets and McChickens and McSin. Uh, we had a uh, funeral here yesterday for a longtime Christian member. And uh, we had a lot of great home-cooked southern food. And on Wednesday nights, we have a student ministry, and the funeral was Wednesday afternoon, and we had a lot of food left over. And so we saved it for the student ministry. And some of the students who are used to Pastor Robin's microwave pizza uh, were, the, for the first time, turning their gaze to green beans, mashed potatoes, macaroni and cheese, turkey with gravy. And as they were lapping this stuff up as if it was the very, you know, milk that they had been raised on. One of them turned to me and said, man, Josh, this stuff is amazing. What, what is this? Where'd y'all get this? And I had to say, it's manna from heaven, boys. <laughs> manna from heaven. This is what the church should be doing spiritually. We should not be taking our, our young people or anybody in the church for that matter to the spiritual McDonald's. When we have wonderfully talented people spiritually who can make a meal with God's word. Why? Why would we go somewhere else? 
when we have a rich feast in God's word. Turn your eyes from worthless things and give life in the ways of God. The last point I want to say about Romans 8 here is this. At the very last verse, it says, The Spirit of Him, Jesus, uh, uh, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. You have what brought Jesus out of the grave. You have what has given life to not just our Savior, but to each and every Christian. You have the Spirit of God. And this is both a comfort, but also a challenge. It is comforting because God is fulfilling salvation in you, but it is a challenge because why would the Spirit let its people not make disciples, not evangelize, not be the church? These two things cannot be so. They contradict one another and they cannot be. And I allow, I allow room for those who are in the church and they're still on their journey. They have not yet reached salvation yet with the Lord, that God is bringing them to himself. The gospel seeds are going out. And there's a place for that in the church. I truly believe that. There should be lost people in the church. If there's not, then how's the church growing? It's not. Make a disciple. That's, that disciple is going to be lost. And we live now in what I call a postmodern Christian culture. We do not have young people with parents and grandparents who are Christians primarily. In fact, primarily they're not. We have young people now, high school students, who do not understand Christian terminology. The word saved could refer to a computer game file, not to the state of their soul. This spirit in us is going to communicate to others, especially young people, the message of the gospel. Romans 10, how can they hear without a preacher? And if you have the Spirit in you today, you are the preacher. You have been given what is necessary for eternal life, and God has now commanded you, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to go forth and bring it out. So I want to encourage you that the Spirit is comforting you, is bringing you to God, but also challenged tonight. That if you do have the Spirit of God, then it should be coming out of you. As Jesus said in John 4, the wellspring of life coming out from the heart and going forth. When you open your mouth, it is the river of eternal life, the message of God. And this is what your disciples and those around you should experience. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is what the church should be doing. We are in the business of life and not physical, eternal. And this is where our message should stay. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, once again, we submit our mortal bodies to your word. Lord, we are not good enough, Lord, on our own. We would fail. In fact, we would turn from you as Psalm 14 said that we have. Lord, there is none who seeks you. There is none who goes after you. It is you who have come after us. You left the 99 and went after the one sheep. Lord, in each and every one of us who were rebelling against you, rejecting your will, rejecting your commands, rejecting your scripture, but you went after us. And you brought us back and made us a part of your family given us the Spirit of God, by now which the condemnation has lifted, there is no weight upon our souls. We can be free and upright and fulfill the work of your kingdom. Lord, we ask now that you would bless us. Lord, bring us a renewed sense of this Holy Spirit, Lord, that we can use the power that it gives 
to preach and teach and make disciples and make food, Lord, deep, wonderful, spiritual food that will truly nourish your people. Lord, we ask you to continue to grow us and make us like your Son, in whom we have eternal life. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.